Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today we're broadcasting from lovely Los Angeles. Coming at you from our sister station, KPCC, in Pasadena, to be exact. That's right. We are excited to be here in what turned out to be very sunny SoCal this week, uh-huh. with a man vying to run California's Democratic Party. Rusty Hicks will join us in just a little bit. He is currently the head of the Los Angeles Labor Federation. No small job, but he's one of two leading candidates vying to become the Democratic Party's next party chair. And they'll be deciding that, Marisa, in San Francisco, just a little over a month from now. Yeah, and we should say we are recording this a little earlier than normal today, and um, the Mueller report is sort of just getting released, so we're not going to be that. talking about that because we didn't have time. <laughs> we don't know what's in it. Um, but I think, you know, what, what I think we should do, Scott, is talk a little bit about this party chair uh, uh, race before we bring Rusty in, and, um, I, you know, so for our normal people, our normal listeners, normal people. <laughs> for normal people, <laughs> for all you normal people yeah. out there, um, who don't follow this super uh, closely, um, the reason there is even a party chair race in 2019 as that the uh, man who was elected two years ago to lead the Democratic Party, Eric Bauman, who also an Angelino, also also Angelino, also from the labor uh, movement, who had long been sort of seen as the heir apparent by a lot of people inside, um, was uh, had resigned last year after allegations over inappropriate sexual conduct and and harassment. And um, he had gotten elected in a very, very contentious election, a sort of an insurgent candidate, Kimberly Ellis, who uh, was came in very close. A lot of people didn't really see her candidacy gaining steam until toward the end, really. <laughs> until that day on the floor <laughs> until when that there day was they a were lot counting of votes. Yeah, and I mean, it was interesting because it came really right on the heels of the 2016 election. Kimberly sort of took a lot of the momentum from the progressive wing of the party, from the Bernie Sanders supporters, who had already felt like they had really not been listened to by the National Party in 2016. Which is a little ironic, as she supported Hillary Clinton, I believe. Yeah, but that was sort of the that was sort of the how things played out, and it was a very close race, um, and it came down to. Got a handful of votes, really. Um, And so, uh, you know, this is sort of this interesting interlude the party, of course, did not expect or want. um, But now you have, uh, you know, there's like eight 
8.6 million Democrats in California. Um, it, it's not a small job. I mean, wh- tell yeah. us a little bit. What does a party chair do, Scott? Well, you know, it's a, it's kind of like herding cats, I guess, as you might say. Uh, I think that's just the delegates. But the, Well, the delegates and all the party chairs. I mean, there is a lot of, uh, you know, it's, it's top down, but every county, of course, has its own party, both Democrats and Republican, as you know. Uh, some of it is fundraising. Some of it is coordination. Some of it is setting the rules and, and creating a tone, I think, also. I mean, especially, I think, this time with the election coming in the middle of what would have been Eric Bauman's term, I think people are going to be looking for transparency, uh, for inclusion, uh, those kinds of things in terms of policies you know, around misconduct and how employees and you know people within the party were treated because some of the allegations against Bauman were really about people who had been uh, that he had been a superior to. Right. And the power dynamic there. I mean, but let's be clear, too. I mean, one of the biggest functions the party does is around money and campaign finance and fundraising. They are not subject to the same sort of strict dollar limits that individual campaigns of candidates are. And so they get a lot of money from candidates who, you know, raise it. And then they put that into the races that they want to prioritize. And I think, you know, one thing that will be interesting to talk to Rusty about, and we are hoping to get Kimberly Ellis is running again. We've reached out to her. We're hoping to get her on the show before this election, um, which is like the last weekend of May 1st. It was May it's 31st. like May 31st yeah. to June 2nd. But, you know, is this question of, like, where do they focus in 2020 when you have all these congressional races that, you know, Dems just flipped, all these legislative seats that Dems just flipped? And, you know, they're not all in these blue strongholds that have historically been who represents Democrats. They're not going to want to go up on 16 tax hikes, you know? No, exactly. And there's already grumbling uh, from some of the Orange County Democrats who got elected in this last uh, wave election uh, that some of the votes and some of the policies that got Governor Newsom is proposing, uh, you know, he termed one of the first things he did was to sue Huntington Beach over their housing, uh, lack of housing, uh, progress on building housing. And that made some of the Democrats who just got elected down there nervous. And, of course, mindful, too, of what happened to Josh Newman, who cast yes. a, a deciding vote for the uh, for the gas tax and then got recalled. So Although it, that was – you could – we could we could spend a half hour talking. Yeah, about. but I mean, that was point kind of is, excuse. point is, it yeah. is still a very purple county, uh, and you know, Democrats have so many members now in the legislature. You know, I don't want to say they're not too worried about losing a few, yeah. but they can and, and still maintain that that super. And we should mention that you know, this year California is in play in the presidential race in a way that it hasn't always been, or in twenty twenty, right? To be seen, but yeah, well, you know, in terms we, of the primary. Yeah, I mean, we have an early primary. It's on Super Tuesday. Ballots will go out, you know, as caucuses in Iowa are underway. We do not have a winner-take-all, you know, in the Democratic Party in California. It's not winner-take-all in the delegates. And so you're going to see, I think, already we've seen so much more attention from these what, two dozen candidates or so on the Democratic side? Yeah, I think mean, most of them, not quite all yet, have uh, committed to speaking at the party convention at the end of May, early June. Uh, and so they're all going to be coming through and making their case and meeting with donors. And my sense, uh, just from the last few days down here in Los Angeles, is that you know donor, a lot of donors are holding back. They're either, they haven't committed to a particular candidate yet, or they're spreading the money around a little bit because they want to kick the tires. They want to see uh, you know who emerges, who who is strong. Uh, 
Uh, you have some uh, big donors, uh, fundraisers, bundlers that are holding multiple fundraisers for different candidates. So I think that weekend will be an interesting time for them to kind of see up close and personal what these candidates have. And obviously, the FEC numbers uh, in more detail came out this week. Kamala Harris, as we would expect, uh, has a big advantage in fundraising, especially the larger donors here in California. It is her base. Uh, but it's going to be a very, I think, competitive primary. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of the polls, you've seen Biden and Sanders are very strong candidates in California. We have another Californian who jumped into the race, East Bay Congressman Eric Swalwell. Um, Obviously, Harris, you know, I think sees her path through both places like you know, Southern uh, South Carolina, but also through California. And because we have so many delegates and because we have, you know, the opportunity uh, to sort of hand those out among the different candidates, I think we're going to see a lot of, I don't know, I think it's going to be an interesting thing here. Yeah, and I think, too, uh, it is such an expensive state, obviously, and there was some doubt about whether, you know, how much would candidates uh, really want to put in a lot of resources here? Because, as you mentioned, I mean, first of all, there may be some, there may be fewer candidates by the time they come to California. That often happens, either because the fundraising will knock them out, or maybe the Iowa caucus will. Uh, but, of course, uh, they'll still be on the ballot, because those and those ballots will be in the mail. Awesome. Well, we are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by Los Angeles Labor Federation President Rusty Hicks. You've been listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. All right, and welcome back to KQED Public Media's Political Breakdown. This week, coming at you from KPCC in Pasadena. I'm Marisa Lagos, along with Scott Schaefer. And today, we're thrilled to introduce the man hoping to lead the more than 8.6 million Democrats here in California. Rusty Hicks, welcome to The Breakdown. Welcome. Good to to be with you. So we're going to get into, like, your life story and biography. But I guess to start, I mean, let's give you the, you know, the million-dollar question. Why do you want to be the next party leader? You heard us talking about, you know, sort of the last two years of turmoil. Yeah. I think our party is uh, really at an inflection point in many ways in California, and especially we've got such a big job in front of us. 
I think we have to be singularly focused on seeing a change in the White House. I think California can play a big role in that. And I think we have to ensure that we have a party that's prepared to do its part uh, to see that change. When you say it's an inf- an, at an inflection point, like what do you mean by that? Well, I think we have some some uh, we saw some great victories in 2018, uh, and we've also experienced some 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 real challenges. Um, you you mentioned uh, in the prior comments about why we're even having a chair's race right. to begin with, and I think we have to address those issues within our party before we can truly get to the to the real work of the of the party. Well, since you brought that up now, um, let's get into the heart. I mean, <laughs> you know, when these types of stories come forward and there are multiple allegations, it seems to me that behind the scenes you hear a lot of like, oh, everybody kind of knew that. Um, I mean, you've worked in the labor movement in LA for a long time, as had Bauman. Like, what was your reaction when this case became public? Were you surprised? Well, I think we were all disappointed uh, and in, in many ways saddened. Uh, that um, this had taken place and there have been um, people that we know and people that we've worked with that have been impacted and are experiencing real pain and suffering as a result of this. And so I think we have to ensure that it never happens again. Looking back on it, and I know you don't want, don't want to relitigate all that period of time, but you know, were there warning signs? Were there things that uh, could have been looked into, handled differently, either with Eric Bauman or you know, others perhaps who had uh, had allegations or complaints. I mean, was there a, was there a lack of transparency? Was there or a, a process or a process know? that really people could have faith in? Well, I think the the party's policy and procedures and its systems uh, to prevent this uh, in the future um, was clearly not as strong as it uh, should have been, uh, such that we had a clear place as to where complaints could be lodged, that they were going to be investigated by a third party, that there was going to be clear action taken uh, when that uh, complaint was adjudicated. And so I think that's what we've got to do. That's what we've got to put in place uh, going forward. All right. Let's uh, go back and talk a little bit about your life. Oh, um, <laughs> this is the fun part. So you grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. I did. Um, I understand you were raised by a single mom. Um, tell us about that. Like, how? What was your childhood like? And, and was politics a part of it? Well, I mean, and uh, I like to say that I'm I'm certainly proud to be uh, uh, from Texas. Texas is a good place to be from. I got here as fast as I could in, uh, in many ways. It's like me; I was from uh, Buffalo. I was like, I'm getting yeah, out of here. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, it was it was really growing up. It was uh, my mom and I, and uh, as a single mother, saw up close the struggles of um, um, a mother trying to make ends meet and yeah. keep it together and uh, be present uh, and and do so much. Um, do you have a, siblings? An important time. Only child. You're the only child. Only child. And you didn't meet. Mom your... said that was enough. That was yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You uh, you didn't meet your dad until you were I think 11 years yeah. old. Talk talk about that. Why that was, and what were the circumstances? Yeah, I think in many ways, uh, a present mother and an absent father really shaped who I who I am in many ways. Uh, as you said, I, I did meet him for the first time when I was 11. He was in Huntsville State Penitentiary, oh, wow. and I. Um, I'll never forget that Saturday morning when I went and met him for the first time. And, uh, you know, he clearly spent uh, uh, the better part of two decades cycling in and out of the correction system, you know, dealing with those demons that he never could, could quite beat. And so uh, I think in many ways his, his absence and the reason for his absence uh, played an important role in my, you know, upbringing and my decisions going forward. Was his incarceration related to drugs or, you know, what can you say about that? Yeah, certainly there was drugs and alcohol connected to um, all of the activities that uh, resulted in him spending so much time locked up. 
Did you hear much about him from your mom when you were growing up? It was interesting. I was, I was um, probably when I was nine or 10, I think I started asking the question. Mm. Up until that point, you know, mom and I, that was just normal. That was normal. That yeah. was what it was. Uh, and so, you know, she, at that point in time, I don't think she actually knew where he was mm. or what was going on with him. They had, you know, parted when I was probably six months old or so. And uh, so it was an uh, an act of courage for her uh, to step forward and do the research and go find him. And then being willing to say, to sit me down and say, your dad's locked up. Yeah. Well, and hard too, I'm imagining emotionally, because like you have had responsibility for this child and probably sacrificed a lot for them. And I mean, for her, that must have been right. sort of dual emotions as well. What kind of like, it sounds like from reading about your life that, you know, her challenges and, and trying to make ends meet have informed your work in the labor movement. Like, what did she do for work? And I mean, did you feel, did you know that you guys were struggling growing up? She was a, um, a bookkeeper okay. uh, in an accounting department for uh, Tandy Corporation, which is uh, Radio Shack, a parent company of, uh, of Radio Shack, uh, downtown Fort Worth. Uh, she, I think, probably wanted to continue her education. Uh, she deferred that. One of my proudest moments was actually attending my mom's college graduation just about two two years after I graduated. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So in some ways, we kind of went to college together, yeah, which together. is a pretty cool experience. I, d- so. I just want to ask you about, the, you said, I think it was a Saturday morning that you met your father. Yeah. Can, well, you said you'll never forget it. Like, what was so memorable about it? Well, the day, you know, uh, we drove down. I think it's probably a two or three hour drive. We go through one checkpoint and then another checkpoint and another checkpoint. And then we get into this reception area. And because it was the first, I think it was the first visitation that I had had uh, with him. Uh, I just remembered the, 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 um, the smell, the noise, um, the, the sterile nature of it all. And I remember seeing him across uh, sort of the reception area, and he walks in. He's an all-white, you know, all-white uniform, I guess. Um, And he's on the other side of a plexiglass with a grill at the bottom, just how you, you know, Mm -hmm. probably have seen it or imagined it. But it was very real, and it was, um, I just remember it being, you know, a two-hour block of time. I don't believe... I don't remember, but I don't think we took the full two hours. Did you feel like you connected with him or not really? I just remember walking out and saying, I don't want to end up here. (laughs) That was the takeaway. That was the takeaway. You know, and so the decisions in my life have in many ways kind of cued off that day. Yeah. uh, In a a major way. The reason, you know, in many ways why I went into... Uh, public service when I went into this to this work. So. Well, talk about that transition because you went to Austin College in Texas mm-hmm. and then you came, I believe, to LA as a Coro Fellow. Is yeah. that was that the first it's kind of interesting story out of uh, out of college? I ended up in a fellowship program in the governor's office in Illinois, of all places, oh, wow. called the Dunn Fellows Program. Wasn't Blagojevich, was it? What's interesting is it was two governors, <laughs> both of which also end up incarcerated. George Ryan. <laughs> Uh, who pardoned 167 people off death row, which was an interesting time to be there, and Rob Blagojevich. 
uh, I knew about three months into that administration, this was not the place for me and that I should sort of move on down the road. Once again, you said, I don't want to end up like (laughs) them. (laughs) There's a theme developing here. here. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I ended up, uh, as you said, as a a Coral Fellow in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, I I hadn't necessarily anticipated coming to Los Angeles. um, But I think as soon as I... You know, shortly after I, I got here, I got I got hooked. You felt like this was home. Yeah. And then at some point you joined the military. Was that before or after you started in the labor movement? It was actually after. Uh, I started, uh, I became the political director in 2006, uh, September 2006, uh, with the L.A. Fed. And then I um, ended up taking a commission in the, in the Navy Reserve in April of 2008. Why? What led to that? Yeah, I think in some ways, um, I feel like I was sort of uh, destined to do some level of military service. Um, Is that your Texas roots kind of coming through? I, there's probably a little bit of that. I remember doing a book report in third grade, and we could do it on anything that we wanted. And for some reason, I decided to do it on the military. And I went down to all the recruiting stations and got all the materials and did this whole book report. And that, you know, kind of stuck with me. And it just never been in the right place in my life uh, before then uh, to do that. And so I found a way to uh, join the reserve in, in 2008. And so shortly after the my work at the labor movement. Yeah. Was that like a hard bridge for you? I mean, I feel like in California... You know, in some states, like, there's a different sort of outlook. But I think, like, post 9-11 and given the sense at the time that, you know, we're in these endless wars, like, did anybody question that? Or was that ever hard to sort of explain to the people you were working with? I think everyone questioned it. <laughs> in fact, they just couldn't understand why uh, I would do that. And, and given, you know, I'd been and have been blessed with opportunities, why would I choose that path? Mm-hmm. And for me, it was, I felt and have always felt a sense of obligation that those who um, have been blessed (laughs) have an obligation to step forward and do their part, just like, um, you know, the sister or brother in Fort Worth, Texas or Flint, Michigan or some other part of the country who don't have those opportunities. How do you think that experience, you know, either changed you or stuck with you? I mean, what is it about that experience uh, in the military that, you know, you're going to put to use if you become party chair, for example? Firing squads. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, what I would say is um, I joined in 2008 and I deployed to Afghanistan in 2012 and did a year uh, deployed. And so I had the, uh, I, I come to understand the high price of service mm. and what that really means. Uh, you know, I was in law school at the time. I had to put my legal education on hold. I had to sit out a, an important election cycle. I had to leave my family for, uh, for a year. Um, and so I, I came to understand uh, the price that uh, families who step forward, and in many ways, it's not just a, a service member, right. it's a family that also steps forward as well. Right. So let's talk, though, about the work you've done in labor as well, because mm-hmm. that has been going on, as you mentioned, for, I mean, really the past, what, 15 years or so, um, maybe? Yeah, a little yeah, over 12. A little, yeah. A little over 12. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. before. Before leading the Labor Federation, which represents, we should say, about 600,000 workers around Los Angeles who are in um, a a number of different unions, right? Um, 300 locals. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So you did a lot of the political stuff for them before you – you were the political director for the union. Correct. What what does that mean? Like what kind of work are you doing and and how does that translate into elections and kind of the work you're trying to – you're vying to do now? 
Well, it's really building political power for working people. It's it's harnessing the power of of uh, hundreds of thousands of of workers all across the county of Los Angeles to be able to help support uh, candidates, uh, pass ballot measures that actually improve uh, the lives of you know in many ways ten million um, Angelinos uh, all across the county. And so there, it's this is the um, where the rubber meets the road. This is um, running a process to to assess candidates and measures, uh, to develop plans to get you to a win, raising the resources to be able to um, carry out that program, and then executing. And so that's been that was you know for the better part of uh, eight years that that was the work that I did. And you worked pretty hard last year on some of those congressional races, right? I did. We K- were Katie we were, Hill. Katie Hill was a uh, an important victory that was really a. Um, 18, 20 month um, effort uh, to lay the groundwork and then turn it into a victory in November. How do you feel about those seats? Well, I think we, we've got a, I think our biggest challenge is, is not in 2020. I do think we will have to do uh, work on the ground to ensure that we're in a good place and we protect those seats. I think our biggest challenge is in 2022. Mm-hmm. You've got new district lines that are in place. You've got a likely a governor running for their second term and likely to see a depressed turnout. We have to build real infrastructure in the state in order to protect and preserve those seats. All right, just a reminder, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Today we're talking with Rusty Hicks, president of the Los Angeles Labor Federation. I keep trying to give you a promotion to the California (laughs) Labor Federation. They might have an issue with that. (laughs) You strike me as sort of soft-spoken. You know, uh, and I'm, I haven't seen you on the stump, and I don't know if that's something you'd like doing, given those fiery speeches. But you're running against somebody, Kimberly Ellis, who's kind of known for that. Obviously, that's not what the chair does. Whoever gets elected, there's a lot of kind of, you know, nuts and bolts kind of things. But I just how do you how do you think of yourself as a public figure? I mean, is that uh, something that you're? Are you more of a behind the scenes guy? Well, I would say there's there's a there's a time and place for everything. Uh, and certainly, having played a leadership role in the labor movement, uh, I've, I've done my share of fiery speeches. Uh, but I do think that there is um, a need for thoughtful, strategic, and steadfast leadership um, within our within our party um, to help us get through some challenging times and continue to win. What do you see as the biggest challenges to working men and women right now? I mean, obviously there's income inequality, there's automation. Right. There's, you know, like, well, and I think we should say, too, that you know, if you ask a Republican, they'll say, yeah, like, labor is really strong in California, but we still have these huge inequities. We still have these high poverty rates. Democrats, you know, Democrats own that. Like, how do you guys get around those things? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a real challenge. Certainly here in, in Los Angeles, we've tried to... Um, improve the lives of workers, whether it was raising the wages of nearly a million workers to $15 an hour, uh, but not solely being uh, focused on wages, hours, and working conditions, but focusing on their whole lives. Uh, So the issue of housing uh, is probably one of the biggest challenges our party faces, uh, our state faces. And how is that an issue for labor? Because one of the issues that developers will tell you is, well, the cost of labor is... One of the things that drives up the cost of construction. Well, we're always presented with, with a false choice that you can either have cheap housing or you can have a good job, but you can't have both. I think we've proven in Los Angeles that you can have both. We passed a measure, Build Better LA, measure JJJ, which actually created more affordable homes and created good jobs for disadvantaged communities. Uh, and in many ways is becoming an example around the country. Uh, so I, I don't, 
believe uh, the I don't fall into the to the um, this false choice, mm. the false narrative that we can't have both. Well, one thing you did do, we only have like a couple minutes left, but is you launched a tour of all 58 counties when yes. you decided to run for party chair. And obviously things are pretty different in Del Norte than they are here in Los Angeles. Um, what's, what is the most sort of interesting thing you heard from some of those counties that are very different than, than the coastal place that you've lived for a while? Well, while we, you know, we sort of focus on a north-south divide on occasion, I think there's more uh, greater opportunity and potential for us between urban and rural parts of the state. Um, and if you actually focus on the issues, uh, there's not a lot of difference between the different parts of the state. You know, everyone's trying to um, uh, get a wage they can support themselves and their families on. They're trying to get a decent education for their kids. They're trying to find a home they can actually afford. Uh, those are the, really the challenges. Uh, it's been great to travel the state to go to all 58 counties, which is a great idea. Going in 58 days was not such a great idea. A great hashtag, but really challenging to do. You get an appreciation for just how big this state really is. Yeah. Uh, really Biggest is. surprise of the county. It's like, wow, I didn't expect this to be so fill in the blank. I think I always knew that California was beautiful, but the northern, northwestern mm-hmm. part of the state is breathtaking. I mean, it really is Humboldt, Del Norte, Siskiyou, Trinity, those counties that don't have a lot of people living in them. Um, are they're all red counties? Incredibly too. <laughs> beautiful parts of the state. Yeah. So just a minute or so left. What do you like to do um, in all of your free time that I'm sure you have? <laughs> well, right now it's uh, on the phone talking to, uh, to Democrats, <laughs> uh, Democrats all the state, or, or uh, dedicating myself to this uh, platform. I hear you have a dog, though. I do. do I do. Um, Charlie Chocolate Lab Aww. is about two and a half. Uh, he's an incredibly um, um, energetic. He's a great companion to have, especially right now. Is he coming to the convention? <laughs> What's that? Is he coming to the convention? Jerry uh, Brown made great use of those may. dogs. Yeah. Yeah. You, might, you might want to think about a Twitter account I for Charlie. His own, his own IG feed, you know, yeah. that's for sure. I think there's some people in Sacramento who could give you some consulting advice on how I, to use your dog for political purposes. Well, let's be honest, there's a consultant for everything. <laughs> <laughs> for absolutely everything. That is definitely so. true. Um, so, yeah, so, so mostly you are like all about labor and the party, it sounds like, these yeah, days. Not these a days, lot of free time. Yeah, trying to navigate an organization of 800,000 workers and 300 unions and trying to uh, um, navigate a campaign with only 45 days left is is, t- is taking my focus. Quick question, 2020. I mean, did, does the party, is the party basically going to, you know, see its role as helping Kamala Harris, perhaps, if she emerges as one of the finalists? Or do you need think, to have a level playing field? I think we have to have a level playing field. I think California can be the example to the rest of the country as to how you have a robust, transparent debate amongst so many candidates. Um, I've made it clear that I'm not going to endorse a candidate for president prior to the party actually doing so. Not that my endorsement means anything, uh, but what it says is we're going to have a level playing field and be an example to the rest of the country. All right, Rusty Hicks, uh, hoping to be the next California Democratic Party chair. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming in. here. Thank Look you forward to meeting Charlie. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Special thanks this week to our host at KPCC in Pasadena, including Sean Corey Campbell, who helped us engineer the show. That's right, Sean. Thanks for the hospitality. Our producer, as always, Guy Marzarati. And at KQED, our engineer is C. 
Lucille Muller. Our leadership team includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at M Lagos. That's a wrap for this week's political breakdown from KQED. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.